Let me ask you to turn with me again to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. I'm going to break into the chapter and read from verse 51. We've been reading in Acts for our opening Bible readings on the Lord's Day morning, so I trust that the context will be familiar to us, but we're coming today to look at this, well, the martyrdom of Stephen, but as we have been looking in these morning services, the post-resurrection appearances of Christ, and this noted among them, as we'll comment a little more in a moment, but just from verse 51 in Acts 7, this would be the closing portion of Stephen's sermon, really. It's his defense and what was, I guess you could say, a mockery of a trial. But he concludes, beginning verse 51, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. And he, kneeling down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this end to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. But we trust again the Lord to add his own blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. I'll ask you to again bow together with me. Our Heavenly Father, we marvel if we can read these words with some understanding, if we can enter into the reality of the man Stephen, the circumstances in which he found himself. Lord, many of us have known this story since we were children. There is some wonder about it as Stephen is celebrated as the first Christian martyr. And yet, Lord, sometimes that level of story, as it were, takes it out of our, of our conscious understanding that here was a real man with a real circumstance, a real testimony, a real trial, a real death. And we ask that you might impress something of that reality upon us today. And give us grace to rightly unfold and understand your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Verse 51. 
If there's any truth in the observation we've been suggesting along the way that the post-resurrection appearances of Christ were not random, uh, they were carefully chosen, they were particularly revelatory, we might say. We have understood that we don't know all of them, at least we know of one that occurred, and we're told that it occurred, Christ's meeting with Peter, but we have no record of what was said or what was done. We read in Acts, Luke tells us chapter 1, which we looked at last time with the ascension, and that, you could say in some ways, the last of the post-resurrection appearances before the ascension, that Christ had carefully spoken to the disciples in those 40 days. He had given them by many infallible proofs the evidence of His resurrection, and He had taught them particularly things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so here we come, I say, to these continuing the thoughts on post-resurrection appearances, but now these are post-ascension appearances. And if there was any order and particular structure to those prior to the ascension, well, that would just be magnified as we pass on to these post-ascension appearances. We must wonder then when we consider that Christ now not merely risen and glorified, moving in and out, as it were, among His disciples before He ascended. And there's some mystery about where was He in between. Become of the mind, He didn't ascend till He ascended. um, That bodily ascension to glory. But how much more these occasions where the Lord has now chosen to pull back the veil, as it were, that separates earth and heaven so that struggling saints might look upon Him and gain some fresh grace in an hour of need. The three of these appearances, this one we've read of today to Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament, and actually, I would almost say ironically, but that's one of those difficult terms for us Calvinists to use. We might say providentially. I guess Calvinists can believe and see irony. Uh, At times, I think it's there to be sure. But we read of Paul's conversion today in our our successive readings. Well, that's the next of those post-ascension appearances of Christ, His appearance to Saul of Tarsus. And Paul, one of the reasons we include these appearances is because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul includes that appearance to himself among those post-resurrection appearances that verified the resurrection that he catalogs there in 1 Corinthians 15. And then there's a third of these, and that is Christ's appearance to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. We will leave that off from our study this time because we've just so very recently preached through that vision itself. But these occasions where I say the now ascended Christ reveals Himself to His saints here below. The one we've read of today in many ways, is a strange mixture of things. We've got a powerful testimony, and that'll take a good bit of our time today as we consider Stephen himself. A powerful testimony that's rendered by this servant of the Lord. There's tender, there's tender experience in this account. Stephen sees the heavens open. He sees Jesus there. I don't know how much we'll make of it as we get there, but there's a lot of comment and certainly a lot of thought that go into all the other Scriptures that speak of the ascension of Christ, His session at the right hand of God is seated there in heavenly places. 
But Stephen sees him standing. But we also see here the evidence of the venom, really, of hell itself that is vented against the servant of our Christ. I see it's something of a strange mixture of things that, that meet our eyes and our hearts in this occasion. Warmth and yet violence. I trust the Lord will give us some help today as we consider this. And it's a story in many ways that is a story that tells itself. We haven't read the prelude to the story and the testimony of Stephen that's included in that. And of course that sermon that we just read in our opening Bible readings a couple of weeks ago. But to just try and work through, I say, this story that tells itself. I think the first thing that commands our attention with regard to Stephen, this one to whom the risen Christ appeared and showed Himself, is very simply faithful service. If you go back and you read from chapter 6, and you might want to turn there to the opening portion of that chapter, we read there of that time, Luke says, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, always find this an interesting juxtaposition of circumstances. When the disciples was multiplied, church growth, blessing, the hand of God increasing the number of His people. And then we read there arose a murmuring. Dr. McClellan, a retired minister in Toronto, used to say often, we should get the alliteration, the double B's, the blessings and the battles. Often they go together. But in this occasion, where there was need among the the widows and the daily administration to look at those needs, and there was now some problem with some of the ethnic background of those that were there and some that were neglected and so forth, the apostles are approached and, and they can't be distracted to seek to work through this problem, which would be an ongoing need. And it's in this place that we see or we believe that the first occasion in the New Testament church of the seeking and the election of deacons is found. Now, if you ever take my course on Acts in the seminary, you'll have one of your questions on the end of the exam, I think, I'm not sure. Does the word deacons occur in Acts 6? And the answer to that is no. Uh, but it's one of those things that looks like a duck and it talks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Uh, what we see in the remainder of the New Testament, the pastoral epistles in particular, is very practically, obviously illustrated for us here in Acts 6. But there was a search committee, if you will. There were, there were not just anybody, but certain men to be sought out to, to fill this role. And Stephen is among those that are named. And so when we come to see the the faithful service that Stephen renders, and particularly renders in this his final act, if you will, of martyrdom, that he'd been faithful all along. I used to think of Stephen, and actually a previous time I looked at this passage many years ago and spoke on it. I I talked about the, the mundane preceding the... I don't know what word I use, maybe glamorous or whatever. You know, the behind-the-scenes work that we so often miss and sometimes don't enjoy as much as that visible, recognized ministry work. But I used to think, well, Stephen kind of was faithful in the mundane before he was used in the visible. And that's often the case. Our Lord even talks about servants that are faithful over a few things. Uh, being then granted many or much things to 
to deal with. But I wonder in some ways if Stephen, it wasn't like the mundane before the visible, if it was the mundane after the visible, if it was the mundane added to the more notable. Because it's apparent that Stephen had been basically a minister among them, not in the ministry sense of deacon, but in the ministry sense of speaking, of of testimony, of preaching. And so here, I say the mundane and the public. And if you come to consider how he conducted himself, and one of the things that stirred up this mob against him was that he was ministering the Word as well as serving tables and presenting that type of work. And just what an example and what a challenge often for us. You know, to, to, to pick and choose. And I know we have different gifts and abilities and different levels of time and all of those factors come in. But how often it's the case where this is, this is a more recognized service than the other. And we would pick and choose. Well, not so with Stephen. It was whatever needs to be done. If I have opportunity and ability, I'll do it. And so here this one, and if you look down in verse 8 of chapter 6, it speaks further of him. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. This faithful servant now comes to a point in which he's assaulted by the enemies of the gospel. And we might even say, if we can follow our Dr. McClellan with a measure of alliteration today, that his faithful service met with a feverish assault. And if you look at this phrase, actually there's some discussion among commentators. It's not uncommon with this term in the New Testament. But it said there that they couldn't resist the spirit and the wisdom by which he spake. Verse 10, you'll notice in the authorized version it's a small s, but there's many that feel it should be a, a capital S. The spirit meaning the Holy Spirit meaning inspired ministry in these times of the church. It's one of those times where I think, well, the answer is yes. Whether it's his own spirit and the zeal with which he's laboring, well, where did that come from? Well, that came from the Holy Spirit. So whether it's a capital S or a small s, in some ways to me it's just a wash. But I find it significant when you see the reaction of the enemies. And it's not an uncommon reaction, and can we say it's not an uncommon sequence? And we haven't read this, so we're assuming a lot of the context here. But what is Stephen doing? He's obviously following on in what is the, the whole thrust of that early ministry of the church in Acts. They're preaching Jesus is risen from the dead, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one from the Old Testament. And our nation has not received Him. Instead, they've crucified Him. 
You see what follows on from this in Stephen's message. He saw that level of apostasy and unbelief throughout the history of Israel, even at some of those epochs. Did I mention this before? Epochs and epochs. I looked up the pronunciation of that. Us Southerners kind of want to say it one way. You can say it both. There's one I thought would have been extremely Southern, epochs. I think they even put double E in the, in the pronunciation bar, and it said particularly British. Uh, so take it as, as you will, but Stephen deals with these high points of, of history through Israel's experience where faith and then unbelief follow on. And he said, here we are. The fathers have slain the prophets. And you're just like them. Only you've not just slain a prophet. You've slain the prophet. The coming of the just one. You've become his murderers. Well, that's what followed on from this assault and his testimony when he's brought to that mockery of a trial. But think with me of the sequence. There was first some measure of debate. Stephen's preaching a risen Christ who's the Messiah. He's preaching His atonement for the sins of His people. They don't want that. And so they engage. They debate. But they can't resist the wisdom and the Spirit by which He speaks. They're confronted with truth. And they can't deal with it. They can't overthrow it. So what happens? Does salt go away? Do they submit to it? No. If you read the story, then they come to slander him. And there's a real parallel between the false witnesses that they bring together and the false witnesses that were brought together in Christ's trial. They said, well, he's speaking against the temple. And he's speaking against the law. Well, those are pretty high points for the Jews to speak against their temple. I mean, God chose that place out from among the land that He gave His children that He would, he would place His name there. He would dwell with them there. And then the law. What they received from the hand of Moses that Moses received from the mouth of God. And those customs. Well... You could perhaps twist Stephen's sermons as they twisted the Lord Jesus' sermons. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. So you look at the message of those goats and oxen. These various ceremonies that, well, they were prefiguring something. And the fulfillment has come. The temple and all its furnishings and all its design was prefiguring something. And that someone has come. But they twist that truth. And of course Jesus, when He spoke of destroying this temple and Him building it again in three days, He spoke of the temple of His body. Remarkable that the Pharisees grasped that at first. The disciples wrestled with it some. But they come, and when I get say they can't win in the realm of debate, 
They come with false witnesses and they bring in slander. But slander isn't enough. If you see the sequence of this assault, it moves from debate to slander to violence. And of course they drag him from the city and stone him. And you just wonder, when you look at that sequence, you can look at it in our culture even in secular ways. Debate fails. Slander and lies are brought in. They're not enough. Not everybody's on board and believe in it. Well, then you resort to violence. Well, that's happened in the world. It happens in nations. It happens in the church. That's happened here. Those are fearful realities. And again, we can study this, we can teach it to our children in Sunday school, we can rightly marvel at Stephen's testimony and example as the first martyr, but it's, it's not just a romantic story to learn in childhood. It's a reality that a real man, a real Christian, a real brother that has gone before us had to endure. God, give us grace. Because the one thing that we see at this point is that faithful testimony and service that Stephen had rendered before this event wasn't put to an end by these threatenings. It wasn't even put to an end by the violence. Because the last thing I would suggest in a story is there's fruitful testimony that flows out of Stephen's martyrdom and his experience. When you even look at the term martyr, which we pretty much just use with reference to someone who dies, it's not even just a Christian context anymore. The world and false religions use it too. Someone that loses their life or even gives their life on purpose in the pursuit of an end. Well, the word for martyr is really the word testimony. You know, we attach it to death, but when we use martyr in that more restricted way, we're talking about a testimony in which someone was faithful. They continued to bear that testimony even up to and through the point of death. So there was faithfulness even if it was going to cost life to the message that's proclaimed. And when you look at Stephen, there's fruitfulness. And I think there's fruitfulness. I mean, there's an obvious point. You look at Saul here, and we come to that. But think of the fruit. Think of the fruitfulness in the midst of the trial. And Stephen comes and is brought before these false accusers. We read chapter 7 and a couple of weeks ago I commented, I didn't want to break it up. It's one of the longest chapters in Acts and in the New Testament, but to break it up just isn't fair. So we read through the whole of that defense slash sermon before the Sanhedrin. And Stephen here doesn't, he doesn't hold back. He doesn't say, well, you know, it's 
getting a little intense. There's been some problems before, and we don't know where it's going to go. Maybe I'll just, you know, back down a little bit, change the message. There's no thought of that. You see, Stephen's faithfulness, Stephen's testimony is more about Jesus than it is about Stephen. It's more about truth being heard than even life being preserved. And so you see in Stephen a passion for truth. There's no compromise of the message. Now to be sure, he wants the message to be understood. He doesn't want the false representation of his message to stand. And so he wants to clarify what the lies are and what the truth is. But he doesn't change the truth in order to get out of danger. He doesn't give in to the pressure to stop preaching the gospel. And so there's passion for truth. No compromise. But another aspect of This, I say, fruitful testimony. Think of Stephen's prayer for his enemies. I mean, these men have heard his testimony. It's interesting, you know, we kind of focus at times on that. They they gnashed on him with their teeth. This is a calm uh, meeting with the jury of your peers. This is violence. It said they, they covered their ears. What they're doing there is they're giving testimony. They're saying, this man's a blasphemer. He's speaking against Moses. He's speaking against the temple. I can't hear that. It's going to defile me somehow to listen to this. So they cover their ears. Symbolically saying, this is blasphemy. When in reality what they're doing is saying, don't preach truth to us anymore. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to consider that Jesus could be our Messiah. So, I say there's no compromise in his presentation of the message. But when they gnash on him with their teeth, they stop their ears, they drag him from the city, and they begin to stone him. What is his response? Does he take a cue from Elijah? Or Elisha, excuse me, Lord? Bring down, bring down fire upon them. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. There's no compromise, but there's also no bitterness. And folks, I think that's one that we might take a second look at. talked a little bit about some of this when we looked at Daniel last summer. So two summers ago, my chronometer still doesn't work. But I mean, they're in captivity. The church that they know is gone. They're serving pagans. But they didn't take every opportunity they could to stick it in their eye. Well, here's Stephen. 
the midst of a murderous charge. And there's no bitterness there. Instead, there's a prayer for these men. And again, I just wonder, because these are delicate things. You can look through the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, and you can find what we call imprecatory prayers. I mean, some of the imprecatory Psalms, I mean, Bible scholars have to wrestle through and present that to modern audiences, but it's not just Old Testament, New Testament. Remember Paul, he's warning Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. You better beware of him as well. The Lord reward him according to his works. There was a prayer, in many ways a different prayer than Stephen's, coming from the same gospel. But the point is, there's no bitterness. There wasn't even bitterness in Paul. Paul had been bitter to say, yeah, when you go through town, stick it to him. No, he said, just beware of that man and the Lord will deal with him. And I wonder how much of that heart, that gospel heart, will be in us should trials, should slander and violence become what we experience. I wish I had, it was late last night, it was too late to bother anyone, but Derek showed me a, I think it was a post from Chris Anderson, I think it was. I don't know if any of you guys are connected to him on social media, but during the week of camp he posted a, a quote I wish I had. He talked about the Apostle Paul arriving in glory to the cheers of Stephen. Think that one through. That's a gospel heart. Stephen to be, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And there's Saul, perhaps even overseeing this event, consenting at least. A fruitful answer to a remarkable and an unexpected prayer. Well, here I say in this, in his passion for truth, there's no compromise. In his prayer for his enemies, there's no bitterness. But it's at this point that he looks heavenward and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So he knows something of the presence of Christ. And he knows no loneliness. You think of how lonely, how abandoned, how helpless you might feel in those moments where perhaps others have just stood. Perhaps those that knew better. Perhaps those that might have said, well, this can't be. Let me, let me try and help. And Stephen's not concerned with those. Jesus isn't concerned with those. Jesus is 
concerned with his servant. This, we believe, certainly an unusual event, modern charismatic televangelists notwithstanding. But how often in the early days of a new era does the Lord do remarkable things? I mean, Ananias and Sapphira was a remarkable thing from the negative side, the discipline and the purity of the New Testament church. Well, here's a remarkable thing with regard to the comforts of the New Testament people. He doesn't turn the stones into nerf balls in between the priests throwing them and they're impacting Stephen's body. He lets him die. But he's with him. As we've seen in the Psalms so often, the psalmist that is under trial and pressures from various directions, they, they pray, they seek God, they work through the thing, and then at the end of the psalm they're rejoicing, but the problem's still there. It hadn't gone away. But the presence of God has been added to the mix. And so here, if we can seek to perhaps foresee or ask for ourselves with regard to any crisis that may be thrust upon us, that when such pressures would come, we would have no compromise. That we would have no bitterness. And that we would have no loneliness. And that our Savior, just as Stephen's, would be present. I find it interesting that in the midst of this story of Stephen in chapter 6, if you're still open to the early part of that chapter, the blessing of the church, the need for the, the deacons to be sought out and to be serving, Stephen noted among them, Luke gives us one of those uh, little summary phrases that he inserts all throughout the book of Acts. And we read there in verse 7, the Word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of the priests were obedient. told you of my multiple listenings to Sinclair Ferguson's lectures on the Marrow Controversy. And he speaks in that series of Jerusalem sinners just dealing with the wonders and the grace of the Gospel. Here are sinners. You ever wrestle with assurance? You ever wrestle with Things you've done that the Lord can't ever possibly forgive. You sin against light even. I wish I could properly mimic the Scottish accent. But he speaks of this text. And he said, here are Jerusalem sinners with the blood of their Savior quite literally on their hands. And they're brought to glory. Ponder the joy. When we read in Hebrews of the joy that was set before Jesus, 
Does it say there he was really joyful about that little boy that grew up in Sunday school and led this life that everybody would say exemplary and he rejoiced to bring him to heaven and these chief priests that murdered him, he reluctantly brought them? The joy that was set before him. Endured the cross. And I just wonder perhaps if some of the venom that these other priests, these from that synagogue of the Libertines that so accosted Stephen, weren't just a little nervous when they saw some of their colleagues. Some of the people that previously were lying and getting their own false witnesses together to crucify Jesus are suddenly believing in and preaching this Jesus. Just try and fight a little harder. This message of grace was coming with power. Well, there are many lessons, I think, and many more we could pull from the story of Stephen. But he was a faithful martyr, a witness, a testimony of a man with a real gospel. And the Lord didn't let him die alone. The Lord appeared to him in a remarkable way. One of these carefully chosen post-resurrection, now post-ascension appearances of the risen Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we ask today, take up even this reading, these few observations from this you've chosen to record and keep for us of this one faithful martyr and give us to glean something of the gospel heart. Lord, that willing service faithfulness even in spite of danger and yet the blessed presence of a precious Savior. Take up your word. Write it on every heart we pray. In Jesus' worthy name.